With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 399 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, and I am all by myself today. Jill is working from home while I'm recording this, but I hope you guys are all having an extremely happy Monday. Uh, We have one more episode to our very special 400th episode, which is coming to you on Thursday, which is super cool. Really excited about it. We're going to give you guys a little history of Overdrive with our CEO and founder, Steve Potash, which is really, really fun. Uh, Today's episode is also incredibly fun. It is an interview I did with Maaza Mengiste, who is the novelist that created The Shadow King, which is just a beautiful story uh, set during Mussolini's 1935 invasion of Ethiopia. Um, It kind of takes you back to the first real conflict of World War II and tells the story of these Ethiopians and Italians who were involved in this war. And she tells both sides of the story, and we get into all the research she did and how a lot of it started with old photography that she saw and her passion for that. And it's just a beautiful story by a wonderful person. Um, Aza was so much fun to talk with. Um, we became buddies pretty quickly. So I, I really think you'll enjoy the conversation. And um, yeah, it, The Shadow King is one of the best books of, of 2019. So definitely check it out. And I think after listening to this conversation, you're certainly going to want to. If you want to get a hold of Jill or I, or both of us, you can, of course, always go to professionalbooknerds.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. Uh, and you can also email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. And speaking of emailing us, a whole bunch of you have been doing it lately, sending us your 2019 Professional Book Nerds reading challenges. Keep those coming. Uh, if you haven't sent it in yet, there's still time. We're going to be accepting them until the end of the month. And then we're going to pick a winner and we're going to give you a, a reading device courtesy of Overdrive and the Libby app. So um, that'll be a lot of fun. So if you are doing the challenge, but maybe you need the the, the form again, it's our pinned tweet, which you can find it on Twitter. Uh, it's also on our um, on our website. So yeah. And also, I've been telling people via email, and a lot of you guys have been doing it, which I really appreciate. But if you haven't yet, if you wouldn't mind giving us a real quick shout-out on iTunes, give us a, a rating, a five-star rating and a, and a review. That'd be awesome. It helps people find us a little bit more easily. And honestly, more importantly, it just makes our day. It makes us smile, and we very much would appreciate it. So, okay, that's enough of my begging and pleading and housekeeping. It won't keep you any longer. I'm going to let you get to this really, really fun and very educational conversation with the glorious Maaza Mengiste on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Adam again, and I am delighted today to tell you that I am joined by Maaza Mengiste, who is a novelist and essayist whose works have won countless literary awards. Uh, Her writing can be found in The New Yorker, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, and the BBC. Her novels have been selected for numerous best-of lists by the Boston Globe, Christian Science Monitor, and several other publications. Her latest book, The Shadow King, has been described as compulsively readable by none other than Salman Rushdie, which is amazing. Maaza, thank you for joining me today. 
Oh, it's really wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So we love starting all of our conversations by having our author kind of talk about their latest book and sort of introduce it. So can you give our listeners sort of a, a brief introduction to The Shadow King? Yes. The Shadow King is set in, um, in Ethiopia in 1935 during Mussolini's invasion of the country in order to colonize it. And I tell the story from both sides of the battle lines, from the Ethiopian perspective as well as the Italian perspective. On the Ethiopian side, I really um, focus on a little-known aspect of Ethiopian and world history, which is that women joined the front lines to fight against the fascist army when the Italians invaded. And I, um, I was inspired by some documentation that I found, some photographs that I found, and also I discovered along the, the process of writing this book that my own great-grandmother had been one of those people that enlisted in the front line. You just brought up so many things that I want to ask you about. <laughs> I, the, the story behind this novel is something where after I got done reading the book and then started doing some research for our conversation, I was as fascinated by the research and the story behind it as I was for the story. So first off, can you kind of give our listeners a little bit more background about your ancestor? Because this part kind of it blew my mind when I, when I read about this. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, um, I did not know this story about my great-grandmother. I had met her um, not long before she died. I mean, I knew her, but I had seen her not long before she passed away. And no one had told me this story about um, this young girl who was in an arranged marriage, at a, and she was so young when, when she was married that she really could not live with an adult man. There's just no way that she could be married. So she was still living at home. Her mother had passed away. She was with her father and three younger brothers. When it was definite that the Italians were going to invade and there was going to be war, Haile Selassie, the emperor, um, called all the eldest of every family, all able-bodied, I think he said men, um, to join in the, in the army, that it was time for men to fight and women and girls to um, who could get together to start following these armies and cook and, and take care of the wounded and all of that. My great-grandmother um, told her father, I'll go, my younger brothers are too young, but I'll go to represent our family as a soldier. And he said, basically, no, you're not going to do that. Um, here's your husband, he's an adult, he'll go to represent our family, I will give him my gun and he will, he'll go. And she got really upset and um, sued her father for the gun and, and the right to go in the name of her family. She, um, she didn't like her husband very much either. Eventually she would leave him, but she just was determined that he was not going to get that gun and he would not represent the family. Um, she pled her case in front of the judges in her village, and she won, which is quite astonishing. Mm -hmm. um, and when she won, she took her father's gun and started singing a song that warriors sing, 
which is really boasting about their courage and their prowess on the field. And then she enlisted and went. And it was just an incredible story. I hadn't known about this. I didn't know about it even the last time I saw her. But every my mother and her sisters knew. And it just happened to come up in casual conversation, <laughs> which was another part of this that I couldn't believe. I, I'm so fascinated by this because I think of the people who I know a number of people who have served in the military who I either went to college with or I've just been friends with who, first off, I count them as substantially braver than I am for sure. But I, why do you, do you think the, the females who chose to go and fight in this war and, and serve for the country, you know, when you're mentioning the fact that, and, so many of them, and if people do research about and kind of Ethiopia at that time, and, and even now about having these arranged marriages, do you think a lot of it had to do with just having some sort of like autonomy over themselves and a little bit of freedom, or was it a pride of of country and wanting to defend that? Yeah, you know that's a really good question. I one of the things is you know my grandmother grew up in a village. It it was it was a small place. She, the furthest that she would have ever gone outside of her village, maybe at most might be five kilometers. As far as it would take to go to market, to go get water, to go to a river, and then come back home. That really is the furthest that most people traveled on average. Even now, people in the villages, that's, without cars, this is how they, they go five kilometers. Um, so I've thought about this, um, the question that you've asked about, you know, is it pride of country? Is it a sense of independence? And I, I began to understand as I was thinking about girls, women, like my great-grandmother, that they wouldn't have had a sense of what a country is. Mm -hmm. If you've only been five kilometers, how do you conceive of an entire country? Um, and, you know, you haven't seen any photographs. You're not, you, you are illiterate. How do you conceive of, uh, like, e Italy coming to, to invade Ethiopia? What is Ethiopia? Uh, what is Italy? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I've come to think that, one, I think it was a sign of independence. This is what I'm supposed to do. I don't want this man to have my father's rifle. I don't like him. I want to represent my family. Um, and also this sense that um, I want to fight for the piece of land I have where my home is. That's a country. That somebody can imagine. Yeah, I, I, exactly what you finished with there. I, I think there's that sense of, I don't even know if it's pride so much as, like you said, defending the aspects of life that you can understand because i find it yes. hard to believe that they could possibly comprehend like you said any imaginable scale of, of what was going on right it just right had, yeah they had no they had not most of the people had not ever seen a bomber plane you know or mm -hmm. tanks there was just no no concept of that so when they're being attacked by by poison gas from these planes and with tanks, you can imagine the courage it took to confront that with 
with rifles that were 40 or 50 years old or swords. Um, yeah, so that was, uh, for me, that's part of the motivation of the story, too, is, my God, you know, that's, this is a, such exciting space for a writer to work in. So you mentioned it with it being such a kind of vibrant area for you as a writer to uh, peel back stories and uncover different aspects of of this, uh, you know, small section of the world ge- you know, geographically, but with these massive stories to be told. What made you want to tell both sides of the story? Because I feel like you probably mm-hmm. could have just done the Ethiopian side and written a wonderful story in and of itself. Yeah, you know, initially that was what I was thinking. Well, I'm going to tell this. I mean, this is enough. But then I started thinking about, well, how do you tell a war story with all its complications without also considering the other side? I was really curious about that. I wanted to break apart myths and legends and stereotypes in, in this war. And Ethiopia had its own myths and legends. And I know that Italy had its own legends and myths about itself and propaganda. And I wanted to break that apart, too, because I understood that um, the nature of war, and in particular the nature of this war, was that it completely changed. Um, It was five years, but it completely changed the way that Italy and Ethiopia, Italians and Ethiopians, would interact from then on. Um, I don't know. I, I think a large number of Ethiopians, I know I have in my family, uh, people who are half Italian, and it's a direct result of this war, of the men who were stationed there, who had children from Ethiopian women. And I thought, you can't separate. It's not a clean separation between, you know, Ethiopian and Italian. There, there are complicated ties that developed, and I wanted to explore that, which meant I would bring the Italians in. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna, I was just gonna ask. This is a, a probably a very Westernized question to ask, but geographically, how close are Italy and Ethiopia? Are they fairly? It's not close? very. No, you have to go through. I mean, by ship. <laughs> which is how the only way I know how to calculate it, because I had to calculate how my soldiers would get to Ethiopia. Right. Um, but by ship, it is it's a it's a solid week on the waters, a okay. solid week of just going. Um, and so it it was a journey, and you go through Port Said and have to go through you know past Egypt and then go into uh, Eritrea and then and then go towards the border of Ethiopia. So it was, it's not very, it's not close. It's not like people were going back and forth all the time uh, before this war. But it became, Ethiopia became something in the Italian imaginary. As soon as this war started to really um, kick in, and even before when Mussolini was trying to create a narrative that would make Italians feel good, about this colonizing effort um yeah okay that makes sense because i i was thinking i was like i know that it's there's i'm gonna try to do this off this is bad podcasting i'm gonna try to do this off the top of my head but i know that it's like tunisia libya egypt are 
the top of Africa, kind of nearest to Italy. So th- this is apropos of nothing. This was more me being curious than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Libya is much closer. Tunisia is very, very close. Egypt is, is on the other side. But if you are, if you're in Libya or if you're in Tunisia, you are closer to certain parts of Italy, let's say, um, than certain parts of Italy are close to Sicily, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Okay. That does make yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I suppose I should have just, I probably could have just pulled up a map and found this out. But That's I, but okay. I'm going to take a quick break to talk about today's sponsor, which is Literati. Tis the season of annoying, buzzing, beeping, shrieking loud toys with small pieces that seem designed to impale your feet. But this year, you can give your the kids in your life something just a little bit different. Listen, every parent knows that they should want to inspire their children a love of reading, uh, but sometimes when they're surrounded by so much going on, it can be a little bit challenging, and thankfully that's where Literati comes in. Literati is the subscription book club that makes it easy for you to find interesting and unique books that your kids are sure to love. And for the first time ever, and for just the holidays, you can actually give just a single literati box if you don't want to sign up for the subscription just yet but i'm telling you you're gonna want to after you see these boxes the holiday ones of which they have eight come in limited edition gift boxes and they contain five world-renowned books based on a theme inspired by the kids who make our spirits bright they also contain original artwork and stickers with your children's names and i have to tell you i've said this a few times in a few other ad reads giving these to my nieces and nephews and seeing their faces light up because i've gotten them something that is specifically for them kids don't get to own a lot of things that are just designed for them and these are all theirs it's their stuff it has their name on it and they absolutely love it this year give the gift of stories by going to literatibooks.com and use promo code Pro Book Nerds for $20 off your first box. Plus, kids three and up get a special blacklight pen that is just so, so cool. Again, that's literatibooks.com, promo code Pro Book Nerds for $20 off your first box. One last time, literatibooks.com, promo code Pro Book Nerds. So, what was you know I your your research like? I've seen some speeches you gave and, and things about uh, a lot of it having to do with photography. But what what was your research process like in uncovering these stories that you wanted to tell through your you know your fiction? I um, the first thing I did was really start talking to people, uh, descendants of of people who had fought both on the Ethiopian side and on the Italian side. I was lucky enough to get a fellowship of Fulbright in order to live in Italy. I lived there for almost a year. I was doing research in the fascist archives while I was trying to talk to Italian friends of mine about their family history with this war. And the one thing I found was, from the Ethiopian side, I got stories of defiance and bravery and, you know, anecdotal um, anecdotes about how a certain relative outwitted or outmaneuvered Italians at this particular time. But those stories tended to be in some ways repetitive because they showed only one certain aspect of the war again and again, which is often the courageous side. 
And then from the Italian side, when I talked to friends of mine, all of them would come back to me and say, we don't talk about Ethiopia in my family. I know my grandfather went, I know my uncle went, I know my, you know, my father was stationed there, but they have never allowed us to ask questions. And I thought that was a really, that was interesting because somewhere between the Ethiopian stories I got and then the, the, the ones that my uh, friends were telling me they, they were not able to hear, I felt somewhere in between there is, is actually the real war. There's something Ethiopians are skipping and there's something Italians don't ever want to talk about. Uh, um, I'm sorry, I was just uh-huh. going to say, do you think from the Italian side it's, it's a sense of um, almost like shame and like regret from the actions that they did? I think so. I think that when those men came back, there were things that they did that they would never talk about. They would not talk about. There were things that were genuinely and are still war crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they participated in that. But um, because Italy never addressed the crimes that it committed during that war, and Ethiopia was so busy with just recovering that it never really pushed, um, those stories never got told. And I, you know, I think about the way that Germany, right after World War II, just kept addressing all of its crimes again and again in different ways from one generation to another. We are still getting more stories. Um, and it, you can see the way that it shaped a German consciousness about anti-Semitism, about racism, about openness. You know, things are changing now. But Germany was really, um, was really ahead on so many of these discussions. Then you look at Italy, and Italy has never had this conversation. And um, it, it has stunted a national conversation and any kind of a collective memory about this war. While you were in Italy, was that where you were seeing some of the like, yeah. photography and things that were inspire- ended up inspiring you? Absolutely, yeah. You know, one part of my research, I, I finally realized once I was talking to fr- my Italian friends, was that, um, okay, they're not able to tell me anything, and I'm looking in the archives, I'm looking in the fascist archives, and it hit me at some point that I'm just, I'm looking at fascist-approved materials from the 30s and 40s. The newspaper articles, the documentation, all of this stuff had been, pre- had been approved by censors. So one way to get this story, I said, I have to just, I have to figure out where the, the other stuff is. And um, I started going to flea markets. And I went in Rome and made friends with one, you know, with a vendor who would keep, keep me, like, I must have been on speed dial or something. <laughs> on, I would get the text, period, like, I just got some stuff. You want to come see this? <laughs> Um, I went into smaller towns, and in, in all of these places, at all of these flea markets, there was always a fascist table. There was always a table with Mussolini bust posters, everything. Um, and so I knew where to look. And it's interesting that these you wouldn't find this necessarily in Germany, let's say a, a statue of Hitler, mm-hmm. you know, being sold or... Um, any of this without some context, but I doubt you would see those things. But in Italy, it's still there. 
and I, um, I knew where to look, and I was looking, I started finding photographs that soldiers had taken with their own personal cameras, um, quotidian daily life, uh, you know, photographs in Ethiopia, and parts of their, you know, some of their letters, their journals, their diaries that they kept with them that didn't go through censorship. I started finding all of this stuff in, in these markets, um, and that is really where the story started to grow uh, for the Italian aspect of it. And I, the thing is, like, I always, people can approach art and photography and, and visual mediums in certain ways, but I feel like, you know, I, I read uh, a piece you did for LitHub about the book, and it seems to me that you approach pictures and photographs with questions about not what's being expressly shown, but what else is just off screen. Is that kind of where, like, you know, sort of what's not captured by the camera? So is that absolutely? I was gonna say, is that part that is that how you start to uh, uncover? the little things that you want to share in your writing? Yes, I started understanding that those photographs I was seeing from soldiers was, you know, you imagine, you imagine these, they were, they were young, they were young men, you know, 18, 19, 20. Um, and like grandmother, which is an irony, they had, some of them really hadn't been that far from home before. They, this was the furthest they'd been. This was an adventure for them. They bring their camera, and they're taking photographs, not necessarily to document a war, but as, way, as, as ways to capture memory. Ways, uh, you know, the camera became a way to remember who they had been at certain, at certain points in their lives. Um, it became a way to reshape or re-remember themselves. And, uh, you know, I always... I, what, I, what I do with these photographs, is, and some of them are written on the back, the location, the, um, the year, is by looking at the back, I have a sense of, oh my gosh, I know what was happening in this city, in this area, at the moment that this photograph was taken. So if it's a scene where these guys are sitting outside in a tent, or outside of their tent, um, in broad daylight, having coffee, and, some, and they're laughing, but I know that that whole area has been racked with ambushes and battles. Um, I can see kind of the incongruity here, but I can begin to piece together something about what might have what it might have been like for them at night. Um, yeah, go ahead. Looking at all of these, you know, pieces of uh, you know these, these photographs and this artwork and these you know, these various things that you were uncovering, I feel like it was probably feast or famine with finding these pieces. But at, at what point do you feel like, okay, I have enough to tell a story or are you still doing research mm -hmm. while you're writing a draft? <laughs> I just feel like this is one of the things I'm always fascinated with authors who have to do a lot of research for a book. Like it has to be almost like a monumental task to finally say, okay, that is my research part. Now let's move on to the writing part. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. <laughs> I I had to realize, I mean, about midway through the writing and research of this, I realized that I had, I had let the research bond me down. Mm. That I knew 
so much about a, a particular region or I knew about these battles and I wanted to put specific battles into the book because I know they happened and important things happened and I was forcing my characters to go into these battles and at some point I realized oh my gosh I'm sucking the life out of them like they have their own <laughs> things that they want to do um, there's really more to a story than just battle 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 it's how are they interacting on a daily basis what are the relationships like between them um, they don't have to know the, the topography of a place. They just need to know where the river is so they can get water. Um, oh. And that's when I said I have to stop the research <laughs> and just completely just write without looking at anything. I, I already know a lot. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the collecting the photographs is just something I think that I will always do because I keep getting more, I keep finding more. Every time I'm in Italy, um, and even some places in the U.S., I find, um, I find these photographs, strangely, even here. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's a growing project, and I'm, I'm creating a, a, an online database so that I can put up these images so people can use them also as resources. I, you strike me as a, a passionate person of collecting information, which I can appreciate, but I'm, I'm curious, what part of the writing process kind of brings you the most joy? Is it that research part, or is it getting to create a fresh story out of this history mm-hmm. that has, you know, maybe been fairly forgotten by a lot of the world? Yeah, you know, it's both. Because World War II has been so heavily researched and it's been written about so much. And yet here's an aspect of, of World War II. This was my, uh, the Italo-Ethiopian War of 1935 was considered by many historians to be the first real war of World War II. Um, and here's something that not many people know about. And then within this war, um, Oh my God, there were so many, like people, there's no way I could make up some of these people who actually lived, um, historical figures that, that connected with Ethiopia in different ways. Um, there's just no way I could make them up. So when I'm doing research, I get completely engulfed in um, these characters that are real, they are real life. And um, there was one, a British commander, um, the British came in at the very end of this war. And, you know, he used, his name is Ord Wingate. He's a distant cousin of Lawrence of, of um, Arabia. Mm-hmm. And he would call meetings with his higher up, you know, to strategize about war and battles. And they would come in and he's wearing absolutely nothing except socks. <laughs> And I was like, I, and he did this in Ethiopia. And I said, I can't put this in. So the research completely will engulf me. Um, but, and there's a joy with just discovering things, you know, just facts and details. And, and they're really, they can be entertaining. Um, but the writing of it, the way to distill research through the eyes of a character and to make that world come alive. Uh, that for me is that is the that's it's, it's combining the two that I I really love. Mm. 
and and it's inspiring for me um, and helps me move on to the next page and the next chapter. Um, something that we really pride ourselves on on the podcast is making sure that we're offering our readers as diverse a book recommendations as possible. And you happen to be the first author on the podcast with an Ethiopian background. So I'm going to take advantage of this and put you on the spot a little bit. Um, (laughs) Would you have any author or book recommendations of other Ethiopian authors that our listeners might be able to find if they are interested after, you know, reading The Shadow King of getting some more of this kind of heritage and culture in their reading? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, I I feel like many people know the writer Dean Almangistu mm-hmm. um, and The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears is an absolutely lovely book and he's written two or three other books, two books since then. And then um, there's a, a, a young writer by the name of Nafkote Tamrat, and she has a book called The Parking Lot Attendant. And that came out last year, and it's a really, really wonderful book. It's a story about migration and a, and a young girl's life in the United States. Um, and if you, um, if you want to read more about this history, and, uh, you know, a little bit more about Ethiopia from, from 1935 and, and forward, there is a, a book called The Wife's Tale uh, that is uh, nonfiction. And The Wife's Tale is written by Ida Edamariam, and it was published in the UK, I know, a couple of years ago, and I believe it came out here maybe last year, and it's beautifully written, and I would highly recommend it. That was amazing. I literally put, I didn't tell you that ahead of time at all. And you just came with some incredible recommendations. Wow, I am thoroughly impressed. Um, That's amazing. Okay, so at the end of our conversations with authors, we love to ask kind of nine lighthearted questions that we call the nerd nine, just because I enjoy alliteration. Um, So the first one is, um, what is the last book you finished reading? What We Owe, um, by, by Golnaz, um, oh, I forget her last name. It's an Iranian-Swedish writer. Okay. It's called What We Owe, and it's absolutely beautiful. Nice. Um, do you have a favorite place to read? Oh, oh in, a, in a cafe, okay. just in general in a cafe next to a window. Okay. Um, do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading? Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. Oh, I have told many people this, and our listeners know uh, because I never <laughs> stop talking about it, but uh, Toni Morrison is actually from the city that I grew up in, in Lorain, oh, Ohio. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yeah, okay. She is our most favorite export. <laughs> oh, she's fantastic. was, yeah. Um, what is one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? New Zealand. Oh, that's a good I want to see the Maori, the dances, the ceremonies. I every time I watch it on video, it uh, it moves me so much. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Oh, oh my God! I'm such a curmudgeon. Um, <laughs> I was going to say the disgust in your voice with that. <laughs> Uh, I think my favorite would be 
You know, okay, let's just go there. I like Christmas because it's it's a nice time for my family to get together. Yeah, that works. Are yeah, you, there we go. <laughs> are you a coffee person or a tea person? Oh, definitely coffee. Uh, cats or dogs? Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, this is complicated because a dog, if it's not little and yippy, mm-hmm. and a cat, if it's a Siamese. Because they act almost like dogs. Okay. It sounds like the answer should be dogs, but I'll accept I'll <laughs> yeah. accept um, Do you have a favorite food? Oh, Ethiopian food, by far. Okay. Um, and then, if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Homer. Oh, that's a good one. That ma- You know what? That makes sense. I understand, because like the women of war and the Iliad. Yeah. And that. Okay. Yeah. Yes. All right, that's very, that's very, wow, you really, I like that the one you had the trouble with the most was a holiday. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Maza, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from The Shadow King? Uh, I hope that they take away the, they learn, they, it, I hope this book affirms the human capacity for love and compassion and forgiveness that is beautiful and perfect thank you so much for joining me today oh, this was a fu- this thank was a blast you. oh this was wonderful thank you so much readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in marketplace professional book nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program to learn about other evergreen podcasts visit evergreenpodcasts.com our podcast is produced recorded and edited by adam sokol and jill grunewald and presented by rakuten overdrive for more information visit professionalbooknerds.com with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.